money, access, influence. What would you do with all the wealth you could possibly ever need in this world to never ever have to worry about money again? You could have everything you want, everything you need. You could take care of your parents, your children, your spouse, your friends, forever. You could have whatever you wanted. A yacht? A mansion? To throw the best parties, have the best things, and hang around with the best people? Imagine what you could do with your life if only you had the right number of zeros in your bank account. Most of us aren't born into that kind of privilege, and wealth seems like a superficial part of what it means to be free in this world. But who are we kidding? Money is everything. Money makes the world go round. And I double dog dare you to say right now, out loud, as you're listening, that you have not dreamt of that kind of wealth. Whatever that may mean to you, does it mean no more working? Does it mean being able to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it? Does it mean traveling? Sitting in yachts in the hot sun in the Mediterranean Sea? Or perhaps going to every destination you could ever dream of because you want to see the best sights, eat the best food, and see the best art? Does it mean making connections? Being with the in-crowd? If you were on the same level of wealth as your favorite celebrity or politician, would that mean power to you? To make the changes you want to see in this world. So, if you could have all of that, what would you do? What would you do to gain freedom in the form of ultimate wealth? Or, better yet, what wouldn't you do? What if I told you that in order to gain that level of wealth, you would have to break the law? You may have to spend years of your life planning for precisely one moment. And each day you planned, if you were caught, you would face time in prison. Would it take you putting your freedom, your life, your family's lives, and everything you have in this world in someone else's hands? Could you do that? Could you have the ultimate trust in another person? If those things haven't resonated with you, would it cost your reputation? Would it take wearing a scarlet letter on your chest, on your name, forever? What if you became so notorious as a result of that wealth that no person or establishment could ever willingly associate with you again? Or could you ruin someone else's life to get that kind of wealth? If you're curious about what one person did to gain freedom in the form of wealth, then come along with me on this exhilarating and dark journey as we crack open 
the Antwerp Diamond Heist. The largest, most lucrative, and most astronomically impossible diamond heist in human history. My name is Dominique, and I've been fascinated with the concept of freedom since as long as I can remember. I love hearing a good story, but more importantly, I love telling them to people. This is Breakthrough, the podcast where I dig up every detail I can to tell you a story of an epic quest for freedom, how it happened, and the ingenuity, the audacity, and the resilience some will go to to gain their freedom, even when they are the worst among us. Diamonds. Diamonds are hands down one of the most desired natural substances in the entire world. Their beauty, their rarity, and their durability make them incredibly expensive and fiercely coveted. The only things rarer and more expensive than diamonds are Californium, a radioactive metal, and antimatter, which is matter that has the exact opposite charge as every other source of matter known to us. In other words, diamonds are the most valuable substance that is available to us, and for which a market exists. A diamond is the only gemstone made of just one element. Carbon. That's right. A diamond is nothing more than carbon. There can be trace elements in a diamond which can contribute to its color and its clarity. In fact, there's pretty much only one other thing that's made of only carbon, and that is graphite. Graphite is what pencil lead is made from. So, what makes a diamond so much more luxurious so much more beautiful and precious from its cousin, graphite. After all, they both have just one ingredient. The answer is that it's the natural process under which diamonds are created that give them their value. Think of it this way. There's cake batter, and then there's cake. They both have exactly the same ingredients but one goes through a much different process than the other. It's only when carbon atoms are subjected to intense pressure and heat that a diamond can be made. And I don't just mean a lot of pressure and a lot of heat. I mean pressure to the tune of 50,000 times the pressure at the surface of the earth. 50,000 times the pressure of where you're sitting right now. This type of pressure causes the carbon atoms to squeeze together so tightly that the atoms actually touch. 
It also takes temperatures of around 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Humans can only withstand temperatures up to 122 degrees Fahrenheit, for context. And the metal and machinery we have at our disposal would melt far before we could reach a temperature needed to form a diamond. So, how on earth does this even happen? How is it that we came to discover diamonds in the first place? Well, the same types of conditions it takes to create a diamond are the same conditions where liquid magma exists, deep under the surface of the Earth. About 90 to 150 miles below the surface of the Earth. And when a volcano erupts, it also ejects liquid magma, which contains rocks that bear diamonds. But not every volcano eruption results in a place where you can find diamonds. In fact, it's estimated that only about one in every 200 eruptions produce gem-quality diamonds. If the magma doesn't spew out of the volcano at speeds fast enough, the diamonds won't survive the eruption and will turn into graphite. That is nothing more than mere pencil lead. Not to mention, volcano eruptions are incredibly rare. Many active volcanoes today haven't erupted for years. In fact, in 2021, a volcano in Iceland, which had been dormant for 6,000 years, finally erupted. Do you know what was happening 6,000 years ago? It would have been the year 4000 BCE, when Mesopotamia was still developing. In other words, it's not like we can just wait around for volcanoes to erupt. We have to dig for volcanoes we knew erupted throughout history. So, now do you see why diamonds are so very precious? They're not only incredibly rare, but they are also one of the toughest substances in existence. The only thing that could possibly scratch a diamond is another diamond. And so, it's because of their rarity, their durability, and their beauty, that diamonds are worth more by weight than any other gemstone. They're even worth more by weight than pure gold. For example, the price per pound of gold in 2022 was just over 22,000 US dollars per pound, whereas a pound of diamonds can cost anywhere from hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions depending on the quality of the diamonds, that is. So, you tell me, would you rather have all the gold you could carry, or all the diamonds, with just one handful of diamonds? You could change your entire world. You could have everything you want. But diamonds are hard to come by, even by legitimate means. And it's because of their value that people who have access to diamonds take very serious precautions when dealing with their most precious assets. Which is why there's just one place in the entire world that's entrusted to handle 
nearly all diamond exchanges that ever occur. Antwerp, Belgium. The Diamond District, where our story begins. 80% of all diamonds in existence have passed through the Diamond District in Antwerp, Belgium. With a $54 billion per year economy, this tiny piece of the world holds perhaps millions of diamonds at any given moment. And when I say tiny, I really do mean tiny. The Diamond District of Antwerp, Belgium occupies just about one square mile of land, and it's made of primarily three blocks that form an S shape. It's unfathomable, isn't it, that so much wealth could be saturated in such a tiny place in the world. The secure Antwerp diamond area actually has its own police force. They are the diamond police, who are absolute experts on everything diamond related. The area is so secure, in fact, that there are telescopic barriers embedded within the streets themselves that prohibit any vehicle traffic from entering the district. You would need an army tank to plow down the telescopic barriers that rise out of the street if you wanted to drive any motorized vehicle into the Diamond District. There are cameras everywhere, and I really do mean everywhere. Hundreds of cameras line the streets and interiors of just about every inch of the Diamond District, and they're operational at all times. Moreover, they're incredibly visible. Why? Because the Diamond District wants to make it abundantly clear that your every move is being watched. As such, it's not uncommon at all to see diamond brokers, diamond owners, cutters, and traders walking around the safely confined streets of the Diamond District with briefcases handcuffed or chained to their bodies. Any diamond dealer or jeweler who has any real credibility in the diamond world has done business in the Diamond District of Antwerp, Belgium. And to top it all off, every single establishment within the Diamond District has the and I mean the absolute best security in the world. We're talking vaults with walls of steel that have over 100,000 possible combinations and require multiple keys for entry. These vaults are filled with diamonds, gold, cash, and other precious metals and gemstones as well as safe deposit boxes, each with its own key and combination. There are tectonic sensors that will go off if anything even so much as attempts to drill through a vault. There are heat sensors that can detect if a person is in the vault at an unauthorized time, and there are meticulous systems of having to electronically key in and out of buildings to account for one's presence. Security is on call 24 hours a day, and cameras are facing every direction. 
So, who would be stupid enough to try and get away with stealing diamonds from the Antwerp Diamond District? Or rather, who would be clever enough, resourceful enough, patient enough, disciplined and daring enough to attempt to steal diamonds from one of the most securitized places on the planet? One person was. Just about every person in the world would say that he was insane for even thinking that he could pull off the impossible. But ask yourself, would you go up against these kinds of odds if the end results were riches beyond your own comprehension? Do you think you have what it takes? Like I said, there was one person who did. Leonardo Notabartolo was Italian and lived just outside of Turin, Italy. At a young age, he had a penchant for thievery and specialized in cars. There was something about the thrill, the sexiness, the speed of a rare and beautiful car that piqued his interest. His first arrest came in 1971 in Paris, France, when he was arrested for stealing an Alfa Romeo 2000 Spider, a limited edition convertible. In today's dollars, an Alfa Romeo 2000 Spider costs around 200,000 US dollars. Leonardo was just 19 years old. He was deported back to Italy and spent the next decade in and out of jail. While he didn't have much formal education, what he learned in prison was far more valuable to him than even he realized. Because in prison, you can learn the tricks of the trade, who to go to for what purpose, and how to utilize your resources to get what you want. By the late 1970s, Leonardo moved on from car theft to something more sophisticated, the diamond business. Given the similarities between the diamond and the Alfa Romeo, that is, their beauty, their rarity, their status symbol, and their value, it doesn't surprise me that Leonardo was able to make this switch. Although he never lost his love for fast and expensive cars, he realized that diamonds, unlike cars, provide certain advantages that would benefit a man in his position. For one, diamonds, unlike cars, are easy to conceal and are incredibly difficult to trace. A vehicle has a VIN number that's unique to that specific car. Although a diamond can have a barcode sketched into it with a laser, a diamond can also be cut to a different size. And if a laser can etch a barcode into a diamond, then a laser can also remove it. But Leonardo also had another motive for entering the diamond business. He genuinely had an intellectual interest in jewelry making and would often draft his own designs. In fact, he even opened a legitimate business as a diamond jeweler. While this business did lend him legitimate credibility in the diamond world, 
It also afforded a cover to make connections with the criminal underworld. And he did it all by using a skill he'd learned in prison. Keeping a low profile. By all accounts, Leonardo Notabartolo was a somewhat forgettable man. And that was very much on purpose. He was somewhat attractive and yet very charming. Charming enough to engage and manipulate you in just a few moments. Yet somehow you'd forget about him the moment you stopped talking to him. According to people who knew him, that is. By being likable and forgettable, Leonardo could be a dangerous man. He owned a jewelry store in Italy at one point, but it was ultimately broken into, and his jewelry and collection was stolen. He was ruined, and perhaps it was this experience that caused him to start speculating about what he wanted in life and what he was willing to do to get back what he'd lost. He had an in-depth knowledge of the diamond industry that most criminals did not have. And he knew the one place that would have untold treasures beyond his possible dreams. The Diamond District of Antwerp, Belgium. And so, in the fall of 2000, Leonardo Norabortolo set in place the greatest heist in human history by doing nothing more than stepping foot into the Diamond Center in Antwerp, Belgium. He traveled all the way from Turin, Italy, for what appeared to be a legitimate business purpose. But for him, this would serve as a recon mission, a test to determine whether it was even possible to pull off a heist in the Diamond District, one of the world's most guarded and secured places. Although one might anticipate that the buildings located in the Diamond District would be grand and luxurious, given what they're associated with, this could not be farther from the truth, especially for the Diamond Center building. The Diamond Center building looked dated and old-fashioned, even by 2000 standards. It was, and still is, a large gray building with no discernible features. From the inside, Leonardo noted that it looked a lot like a regular office building, replete with fluorescent tube lights, generic carpeting, and scrapes on the walls from years of moving around desks and tables. In this building, tenants could rent out office spaces. And by tenants, I mean diamond business owners. Jewelers, diamond brokers, and traders could rent out a suite in the building in which to do their business. They'd be registered with the building and issued a key card, which would record their entrances and exits. But at the same time, any person who was an official tenant of the building would also receive access to a safe deposit box in the Diamond Center's vault, which laid two stories underground. And so, Leonardo walked in one day with some official-looking documents 
some brochures, and a few sketches of jewelry designs that he'd come up with, and asked to speak to the building manager, a woman named Julie Boost, who managed the Diamond Center's office spaces and was one of only four people who had the combination to the vault. Leonardo spent a significant amount of time with her on that day, outlining his business practices and charming her into a sense of security. He must have come off as likable, given that she didn't even do a background check on him. Though he did, in fact, have a legitimate business and real connections in the diamond world, if she had done a background check, she would have uncovered a lengthy criminal record and multiple arrests for theft. As the saying goes, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And when you think about it, the fact that she allowed Leonardo to rent out an office space in her building without running a background check seems altogether ludicrous, doesn't it? However, one thing I've come to understand as a result of doing this podcast is that no matter how insurmountable a system seems, no matter how intimidating, there are always weaknesses in a security system. If you've listened to seasons one and two of this podcast, you'll know what I mean. And above all, a security system is really only as good as the people who are in charge of keeping it secure. Yes, human error. Humans are not perfect, and humans get complacent. However, it's not just complacency that leads humans to overlook details. There's a reason why people are able to get away with scams. I actually researched this and did a presentation at my job at one point on this very topic, but it's because scammers understand something about human psychology. More importantly, a scammer knows that most people will follow societal norms and expectations, most people are trusting of strangers because for one, even though they hear about people being scammed or ripped off, they don't ever think that it will happen to them. Moreover, most people are conditioned by societal norms and expectations to be polite. When you understand this principle and how most people are non-confrontational and willing to accept an explanation that makes sense, you can use this to your advantage to manipulate others into doing what you want them to do, or not doing what you don't want them to do. But Leonardo knew this and used it to his advantage by being observant, likable, and forgettable, engaging, but not too talkative, kind, but barely memorable, never using 10 words, when only a couple would do, and always, always watching. Watching every detail he could. In fact, when Julie Boost took him on a tour of the building after she'd leased him an office for about $500 a month, Leonardo made a mental map of their steps, counted each camera he saw, and asked questions about the building's security that he knew wouldn't be strange for a business owner looking for a secure building for his ventures to ask. 
The office that Leonardo was given was number 516, and it was a small office with a desk, a few chairs, and a less than glamorous view. Not that any of this mattered to him, of course. He wasn't exactly planning on running a business there. But once Julie Boost showed him the vault, which was two stories underground, he knew that stealing diamonds from the Diamond Center was going to be much, much harder than he initially anticipated. What he was able to ascertain from his first visit was that the vault was open during business hours so that tenants could access their safe deposit boxes. But one could only access the vault by standing in front of a camera and buzzing into the security office. Once the security officer recognized the tenant and their ID badge, which the tenant was supposed to hold up to display to the security officer, the officer would buzz open the day gate which was a second door after the main vault door, made of metal slats. The first of many obstacles that he would have to overcome was the security guards at the Diamond Center who were there at all times, except on the weekends. In addition, there were two men who served as concierge. They, like Julie Boost, also had the combination to the main vault and they were on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The two men would alternate nights on call, and they both lived in apartments inside the building to ensure that tenants had 24-hour access to their offices and safe deposit boxes. This may sound excessive, but in the diamond business, it wasn't unusual for someone in Europe to need to do business in, for example, Hong Kong or the United States where there was a time zone difference. The vault was essentially empty. It was a large square room with fluorescent lights lining the ceiling, but lining the walls of the vault were 189 safe deposit boxes belonging to tenants and other members of the diamond district filled with diamonds. Each safe deposit box required a key, which only the box owner held, and a three-digit alphabetic combination. In addition, the vault also had three different sensors, which Leonardo, being the brilliant thief that he was, recognized immediately. One of these was a light sensor, meaning that anyone opening the vault after hours could not turn on the lights without a signal being set off. The next was a motion sensor. If anyone were to break into the vault, the motion detector would pick up on movement and would set off a distress signal. And finally, built into the motion sensor was also an infrared sensor. This two-in-one device not only detected motion, but would pick up on heat sources. Leonardo also learned, in addition to the security inside the vault itself, the vault's outside door was sealed every night at 7 p.m. On Fridays at 7 p.m., the vault stayed closed until Monday morning, with absolutely no exception whatsoever. And 
there was a magnetic alarm attached to the door jam and to the door itself. This was a sophisticated piece of technology that Leonardo himself had never before come across. The magnets were brick-sized, and when they touched, that is, when the door itself was closed, they emitted a magnetic field between themselves. This magnetic field was by no means meant to physically make the door harder to open. Instead, as long as the magnetic field was intact, that is, while the door was closed and the magnets were touching, it kept an alarm from ringing. So if this door were to be opened at a time when it wasn't supposed to be, and the magnetic field was broken, the magnets would trigger an alarm that would automatically alert the police that a break-in was ongoing at the Diamond Center. In other words, even if Leonardo had the right combination to the lock, which had a combination with over 100,000 possibilities and the key it required to open it, he couldn't even open the door without the alarm going off. Leonardo ended his day at the Diamond Center with an office and a safe deposit box and left as casually and calmly as he had entered. Next, Leonardo needed a place to stay while he was in Belgium. Leonardo had a home in the Italian countryside near Turin, which was over 650 miles away from Antwerp. So it's not as though he could just drop into Antwerp without having a spot to stay. Staying in hotels could get expensive and would only serve to add more of a record of his comings and goings. Not to mention, he couldn't risk hotel employees like housekeeping stumbling across any documents or notes in his room relating to the heist. He wanted to fly as far under the radar as he possibly could. And so, he opted instead for renting out a tiny flat in cash. In fact, he didn't even sign a lease. The apartment he rented was dull and drab. It had a mini fridge and came furnished with mismatched furniture. It was a far cry from what he was used to, but it would serve as a place where he could plan his heist in complete secrecy. And so, after his initial scouting mission, Leonardo Nordobartolo returned to Turin, but he didn't go home just for kicks. He went home with a very, very specific purpose. You see, Leonardo had carefully weighed the questions he'd asked Julie Boost and the answers she'd given him. And on the trip home to Turin, Italy, I'm sure he thought about every one of the details he discovered about this trip to the Diamond Center. On his way home, I bet all he could think about was the Diamond Center. Imagining every twist and turn, every problem that needed a solution, every little thing that could go wrong, everything he didn't yet know, and every single diamond that could be taken, all of the wealth he could possibly ever have, the freedom, 
to do whatever he wanted and go wherever he wanted. To hide away forever in luxury. But this was just his first day at the Diamond Center. On day one, he'd been given a homework assignment that, on his own, could take him years to complete. Although Leonardo was highly intelligent, what he wasn't was skilled in the art of security systems. He, like any other person in the diamond business, knew what the best safes and security systems were. However, he himself did not have an in-depth knowledge of things like magnetics, mechanics, electrical wiring, disarming gates, or the intricacies of locking mechanisms. And so, he had a choice to make. So, on his way back to Turin, Leonardo thought about the following. On the one hand, he could do this himself and have total and complete control over the entire situation. Going this route would entail figuring out how to educate himself on all of the things about the Diamond Center vault and security system that he didn't already know. But it would also mean that he wouldn't have to rely on anyone else to hold up their end of the bargain. And another person is something you cannot control. So, he could get some assistance. And if he could get someone else who had the right knowledge, the right experience, then maybe, just maybe, he could pull this off, after all, and split the profit with his accomplice. It would have to be help from a source that he knew he could trust completely, who had a reputation for success, integrity, and most importantly, results. What would you do in Leonardo's position? Would you call it quits, knowing you couldn't do it by yourself? Is there anyone in this world with whom you trust enough to go through with a heist? Maybe you trust them as a person, but think about the discipline it takes to do something like this. Any wrong move could put you in prison in a heartbeat. Sure, we've all imagined ourselves being the star of a heist movie. The truth is, people are messy. Most people are not disciplined enough to have the care, the patience, and the attention to detail to execute something like a heist successfully, let alone a heist of this magnitude. So, is there anyone in this world whom you know for certain would be completely diligent, entirely trustworthy, totally dependable, and exceptionally good at what they could contribute? If he were going to bring anyone into this plot, they would have to be another professional. Leonardo had a choice to make. And his choice was that he decided that he was going back to Turin for school. You may be thinking that he decided to go with the first option and educate himself in the arts of electronic security systems and vault cracking. But 
that's not exactly what I mean. Because the school that Leonardo was going back to Turin for wasn't exactly a school that was officially established by any means of the word. There were no professors, no classrooms, and no location. And students belonging to this school would likely never have even characterized themselves as affiliated with the school at all. This was a school of the underworld, a school of men who had knowledge, skills, and the reputation to successfully pull off heists. But above all else, students of this school prided themselves on their intellect and their stealth and their ability to get away from a crime scene without leaving a trace of evidence or a hostage or harming any people like a ghost in the night. And Leonardo Nordobartolo, though he's never openly admitted it, was a student of this so-called school. So, if you're curious about how this school came to be and the kinds of people who belong to it, then come along with me as I recount to you a tale of a group of men who sought their freedom in the form of wealth by plotting the Antwerp diamond heist on this season of Breakthrough. Breakthrough.